Welcome back to the Pilgrim Faith Podcast, where human wonder fuels the quest for Christian wisdom. Today, Dale and I are delighted to be joined by our good friend, Reverend Stephen Wedgworth, uh, a PCA pastor up in Canada. Uh, for those of you who don't know Stephen, he is uh, he, his, his, his reputation precedes him in the Davenant Network. He's one of the Davenant OGs uh, <laughs> uh, and was a really good help to me uh, in my own theological development. I'm very grateful for his ministry uh, uh, before he had the... Uh, the, the duty of caring for a wife and children. We used to talk on the phone a good bit, and he uh, uh, helped correct a couple of my theological trajectories toward the good, the true, and the beautiful. Uh, yes. So I've always been a good fan of Stephen. Uh, and the occasion for us having him uh, here today is that he just he just published an article with the Gospel Coalition on this recent book by Jordan Peterson, Beyond Order: Twelve More Rules for Life, the uh, the, the the sequel to the to the white covered book, Twelve Rules for Life. Uh, and uh, we just thought his, his, his review at the Gospel Coalition was excellent, summarizing its main points uh, and drawing attention to the kinds of things that, uh, you know, a Christian would want to supplement this text with, uh, other distinctions that we'd want to throw into the mix. But instead of um, uh, uh, so, sort of forecasting it all, we'll just throw it right over to Stephen and maybe say, yeah, maybe the most general thing we can do, well, the first thing we can do is say something general about the book. Uh, um, what do you think it's, uh, maybe a good way to start would be to say, how does it compare to 12 Rules for Life? What's the kind of big idea of what this book is doing, uh, as opposed to sort of allegedly what's going on in 12 Rules for Life? Yeah, well, one of the things I pointed out right away, just look at the book. I don't have 12 Rules for Life on hand, but here's, here's beyond order. Um, 12 Rules for Life looks exactly like this, only it's white. So there's clearly something going on, right? There's the white and the black, um, yin and the yang, or if anybody used to watch the series yeah. Lost. Oh, there it is. See? Yeah. Hold yours up, Dale. Yes. So, yep. Yeah. So you can see that's very intentional, right? And in the intro to 12 Rules for Life, he even explains the whole yin and the yang, or actually... I say yin and yang because I grew up in the U.S., but uh, Jordan Peterson actually talks about the yang and the yin. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and yes. I'm gonna I'm gonna mix them up right now because I don't have the quotes in front of me. But you know, one of the one of those is white, one of those is black, um, one of those symbolizes order, one of those symbolizes chaos. And this is drawn from Chinese thought and Taoism, but Peterson, you know, he tries to use that order versus chaos paradigm. That's his interpretive hermeneutic for, for most things. And he uh, traces that through, you know, Mideastern mythology. He talks about like, you know, Gilgamesh and he talks about uh, Osiris. Uh, he will also connect it to Jungian psychology, more modern things. And you'll try to read that into the scriptures as well, which we might can talk about whether or not that works. Right. <laughs> so, right. um, so he's doing this chaos versus order thing. And the first book was establishing order. It's rules for life. And the subtitle was an antidote to chaos. So right. you get the rules, you fight the chaos. This book now is beyond order. So you've got your order. Now you're going to do more than that. You're going to move on past that. And you might be tempted to think, okay, we're going to revert back to chaos. You know, this is the black book after all. So we're going to break all the rules. But he doesn't want you to do chaos. And that's part of his argument. He wants to say that there are times where it will feel like you're breaking the rules. 
yeah. you'll reach the limitation of the ordering principle. And you will need a certain kind of wisdom, a certain kind of creativity, and a certain kind of courage to break through the, the, what has become a stagnant and oppressive form of order. Mm. And so he actually used the expression, uh, break the rules ethically. Yes. And the first chapter of this book um, is the, the thesis chapter um, where he talks about that. And it's, it's a very clever title. Um, Do not carelessly denigrate social institutions uh, or creative achievement. And so it's negative. So at first you're thinking like, okay, the temptation is we're going to denigrate. So he's telling us not to denigrate. But really the argument is that you are going to have to break through. You're going to have to do something that people might think is breaking a tradition or violating a norm, but you don't do it carelessly. Yeah. You do right. it with an understanding of what that tradition and norm was all about and in keeping with the uh, overall intention. Yeah. 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 That was really insightful. Um, the first chapter, because you're, you're exactly right. And this came at a very good time uh, to, this is a good book in God's good providence to hit sort of mainstream Western thinkers um, about the chaos that we're all enduring on some level. Social institutions are being denigrated. We're watching uh, po political uh, strategies and arrangements shift uh, exponentially quicker than they have in the past. And so he really does want to say, okay, I understand there is a need to sort of move beyond and break some of the rules, but here's the way that we should be doing that instead of sort of burning the system down immediately and erecting something out of the ashes, it's more like, you no, know, cautiously proceed with an eye towards your current context and the tradition that gave you this current context and being a wise observer of the times. So it's a sober call for people to sort of step back and view the world in a dispassionate objective analysis and locate really what you want to do to contribute towards bettering this thing because uh, what we're all what we're doing now is sort of yeah it's failing um i, I wish this would end the interesting thing is like peterson's writing this at a very dark time in his life right so he's mm -hmm. been addicted to um anti-anxiety meds, he sought treatment, he had sort of a mental break, his wife was dealing with cancer. So there was a lot of chaos going on there. And I wonder, Joe and I talk about this a lot, but like sitting inside of the pain and then also trying to understand the world at the same time because time moves on without you, uh, that is a good recipe for a mind to sort of pick up and begin to say, here's the way that we need to move forward. You almost yeah. need that pain on some level, so. Yeah, so. I would just just to add to that. I, I think one of the things that Jordan Peterson is a spent. You know, Dale was talking about his relevance for our times. One of the things that he you can find him saying that is very rare is, and this is really an application of this first chapter. If you could think of 
broadly speaking, whatever we call the right as sort of representing a sort of value system that appreciates the role that institutions play, traditions play in a civilization. And broadly speaking, you could think about whatever the left is as something that's kind of more oriented toward a reform, you know, create, which you know, represented here by creative achievement. He's one of the few people that will say very overtly, modern civilizations need people who are kind of functioning in, on some register, roughly speaking, like whatever we call the right and whatever we call the left, though those could both radicalize and become unethical. But part of what I think a corrective he has, you know, when he talks about uh, institutions, he's not, uh, it's a it's a slightly different nuance than just talking about, for instance, deference to the tradition, which is a right value. That's a proper Christian value, deference to a tradition. But there's also an element of uh, do not do not carelessly demigrate uh, social institutions, which is just to say don't carelessly generate the givens. That is to say, just the very concrete realities around you. You don't fully know what's at stake. And just saying like, well, we should get rid of this system. You don't really know how all that's plugged in to most things and what would really happen if you removed it. And so a lot of the conservative impulse is just a caution. And then that has a, uh, the other thing I think Peterson is, is uh, uh, insightful about and also exposes in us is that this also has a, 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 a parody just as Plato's Republic has a parody in the human soul. So mm -hmm. Jordan Peterson's kind of two poles here have a parody in the human soul, which is yeah. that, which is that uh, we are, and this is where again, ethical rule breaking is such an, an interesting way to put that. There really are, there really is the, the capacity to overly uh, 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 legis legislate and scrupulize life in a way that ultimately makes living impossible. And that real yeah. living does actually require a, a space that the New Testament covers in its sort of a the general injunction. Like it's, it's sort of funny to read the New Testament and realize just how generally the just don't judge comes in. <laughs> it really like, like it's a, it, it, there's a big thick dimension of life that the New Testament assumes goes under, let each man be convinced in his own mind because yeah, yeah a lot of life fits in that category. Yeah. Well, Peterson actually, you know, he highlights Jesus, uh, his interaction with the Pharisees on the Sabbath. And of course, yes. there's, there's a situation where Jesus is healing on the Sabbath. But there's also the story where his disciples are picking grain as they're walking through the field on the Sabbath. And, um, you know, Presbyterians, that's my, our, you know, my tradition, Joe Now's tradition, and Dale's almost, almost there. <laughs> He'll be there, don't worry. <laughs> almost persuaded. <laughs> um and I think this is one area we, we sometimes our tradition has been a little too um, it has struggled to make sense out of those narratives because we just kind of jump to like, well, let's explain why what Jesus is doing is actually allowed. Right. Yeah, like right. that's our first instant instinct. He's not breaking the law. If you really read the law carefully, you'll understand these were always acceptable, uh, you know, options. That's our, our mode. But it's interesting that Jesus doesn't actually make his argument that way. Mm. You know, he'll say, uh, don't you remember when David broke a rule? David David ate the showbread. Uh, you yeah. remember that? Yeah. Right. And, and you break some rules. That's <laughs> the other thing he says. Yeah. Yeah. And basically he says, I'm the, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. You know, that, that's his main argument. Um, and uh, he's unique, obviously. We wouldn't want to take that style of argument you know, <laughs> for, yes. for our own moral dilemmas. Um, yes. But it, it's an interesting case in point that Jesus doesn't 
he doesn't simply explain that, oh, he's just a conservative and the Pharisees don't understand. You know, Jesus actually does say, I'm, I'm breaking a paradigm here because uh, the kingdom of God is rushing in. Yeah. And there is a bit of transgressive uh, rhetoric, at least, when Jesus, you know, he mentions that the, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, they're, they're getting into the kingdom. Uh, that is inflammatory. It's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And uh, as Christians, we have to meditate on that and say, well, well what does that mean? Yeah. Uh, why is he, why is God working that way? Yeah, um, there's an interesting, yeah. one of the things that's, uh, just just piggybacking on what Stephen just said, it's interesting to me sometimes, and this is right, you know, to pay very careful attention to the scriptures, but sometimes when we talk about these moral things, it's almost as though we're trying to generate all of the exceptions directly out of the text. Well, we know that divorce can be happened for this reason because of this verse or this reason because of this verse, or we know that Sabbath can be, quote, quote, violated for this reason because of this verse and this reason because of this verse. But each of those texts actually assume that this should have been obvious to you before you got there. You know, mm. Paul, Paul uses language like, uh, you know, uh, the, the, half of the New Testament epistles are filled of full of really, do I have to explain this to you guys? Uh, you know, yeah. uh, there's, there's an assumption that the, the rightly guided and wise person can kind of see the, the underlying principles in such yeah. a way that there just are concrete circumstances where, of course, if, a, if your donkey is stuck, you, of course you pull them out because that's not what the Sabbath is about. Duh. You know, sure. uh, yeah. And that's what I think Jordan uh, Peterson does good in this first chapter is that he says basically, um, the, the only way that we're going to be able to survive the moment that we're in moving forward is if we focus precisely on our ability to form something deeper than this sort of, so he gets into ideology in chapter six, but to get beyond where we're at. And he uses the story of the sort of really introverted, smart guy that starts coming to his office. He was very socially awkward, mm-hmm. um, wouldn't go into restaurants, wouldn't, you know, because it was just psychologically too demanding on his patient and it was impossible and his patient was sort of defensive and always postured as if he was going to be harmed by any advice or letting people in and then as he works with this man he sort of blooms he, he starts to bloom socially so he starts reading poetry in front of uh, groups of people and hanging out uh, with you know the artistic types and he becomes more creative and as he gets more creative and he becomes uh, deeper embedded into the social, his social setting, then that's when he started to find joy and happiness and all these other things and fulfillment. When he mm-hmm. takes on the responsibility of overcoming the thing that's holding him up psychologically and moves out into his space, that is when you move past your sort of, uh, you know, inward focus. Yeah. Um, and that is extremely insightful but it also just says like jordan peterson understands natural law really well right like as christians we would just say that uh but talk a little bit Stephen, about that phenomenon especially in the modern age how difficult is it to really push yourself into the world and you know give the world who you are and help the and allow your community to form you in some way and why is that important for for moving forward Peterson has his own thing. Uh, so maybe you could talk about what Peterson sort of is trying to get at. And then why, how do we navigate that in modernity? All right. Well, 
I have to think Good about question. that question. <laughs> that's a, that's a Wedgworth question, brother. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, so but I'll, I'll get into that one thought though, to connect us to what we we're just talking about. One sure. thought that comes to my mind, we talk about breaking the rules, um, you know, is allowed, you know, it's okay to break the rules sometimes. There is a danger with that. Um, mm. You think about the magician's nephew, right? Where uh, so those rules are for you guys, but me, right. I'm, I'm the genius. I'm, I'm allowed to break the rules. Uh, that I think would be a, a misunderstanding of Peterson, right? Right. If he's saying, well, normally you keep the rules, but every once in a while you break them. Um, mm. uh, he, he wants us to be so deeply in tune with the, the foundational moral goals and principles Mm-hmm. that we can see how the rules are meant to help achieve that end. Right. But if the, if there's a scenario where the rules come to a, to a limitation mm-hmm. or they, they can no longer achieve that end, we're actually correct to set them aside or compromise or bend a little because we're still pursuing the original end. Yeah. Right. And that yes. is a feature of natural, natural law uh, thinking. Um, because natural law is not simply saying my preferred law code is actually the cosmic one. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, it's actually saying, no, 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 there's, there's something ingrained in our nature that tends towards the good. Yeah. And we feel that, but we're grappling our way towards it. And so we collectively express rules and other things in order to to keep us on the track, so to speak. Right. Um, yeah. And so that might get us to your question about community. Um, for for most people, they are not speculative uh, thinkers where they're just pondering all the time. Oh, I'm in this situation, I'm in that situation. They just inherit things from their family, their church, mm-hmm. their school. Um, they just do it, right? Like, why, why do you stand up when someone important enters the room? Uh, why do right. you um, salute a flag, these sorts of things? Um, why do you shake hands or hug or kiss? Um, you just, you pick that up from your community. Yeah. We're all Tevya here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, right. Yeah. And in the modern world, we are in such a crisis because our communities have been been fractured and dissolved right Mm. and nobody quite knows whether or not they can trust these social institutions and traditions and the force of progressivism at least as it's um you know come into a more extreme version is telling us not to you know it's a virtue Mm. to despise these things um so you're asking me dale about how do we you know live in the world how how do we give ourselves to the world this way well, I think a lot of us are, are really scared to do that right now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, do I give myself to uh, the average community in Vancouver, British Columbia? Yeah. That seems seems like a crazy, crazy plan, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, because they're they're not actually going to help me along towards towards the good. But then what's the option? What's the alternative? Um, you know, I don't like people, I stay at home, or I think what a lot of us end up doing is we just create our, our micro communities, right? Our small, yes. our smaller institutions, and we just stay there. But then you have rival ones that are warring each other. So yeah, it's a challenge. Um, we may be in a time in history where we have to rebuild. 
You know, we, mm-hmm. we have to kind of move out of the big cosmopolitan mix and match and rebuild things. Um, but then I think what a very Peterson idea is that that's going to run into limitations too. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, go ahead, Bill. No, you go ahead. I know you want to. Well, you know, I was just going to say, I think this is one of the things that I've been reflecting on over the last year and a half or so on this score is that it, it's frustrating to me that, you know, you have, you were mentioning sort of the suburban model or the create alternative institutions model. And it's sort of your, your, there's sort of the Tim Keller model and the Doug Wilson model. And one of the things that I, I, I kind of wonder sometimes is whether or not those need to be so opposed. So I, I'm kind of wondering what your thoughts are on, on how, uh, inclination and call it like I, I think where they do need to be opposed perhaps is where they just say this is the way all Christians are called to go do this project and I wonder you know what your thoughts are about maybe the, the thought that um, civilization is complex there's a lot of parts of it right now there isn't just the city or the suburbs or the country or the you know or the you know the everybody that wants to go you know raise chickens and goats or whatever there's you can do all of those things and maybe you know what do you think about the possibility that in fact god is actually calling his people uh to be in all of those places so you say for instance the uh the 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 neighborhoods in vancouver yeah, that's a scary place to be. Maybe they won't help me toward virtue. But you could also say maybe there's some people who feel called to help them toward virtue. In other words, I'm going to be the guy in the neighborhood who like whatever whatever that looks like, whether it's the PTA board or just, you know, something else. If I don't want to do the school part of it, I want to do the, you know, local government part or just something communal. Uh, nevertheless, you know, there's a lot. It seems to me like there's just you know, I live in the Dallas-Fort Worth metroplex, and it seems to me that's just what a lot of Christians do, is they're just around people, (laughs) and that's their ministry, in a sense. Uh, I wonder what you think of, you know, thinking of it that way, as inflected through calling, you know, maybe maybe part of the solution is not just to ask, well, what's the one thing that Christians should all be doing, but rather, what's the one thing I can do in God's providence for me right here in front of my face? Yeah, well, um, thinking about biblical types and characters, you've got your Elijahs, right, who are in the wilderness, and they come into town to rail against the establishment. But then you have uh, like Obadiah, right, who's in the court, and he's he's serving Mm. and helping assist even a a compromise situation. Um, And he's also a prophet of God. Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, I think that's that's part of the Peterson emphasis here is you're going to have your black, you're going to have your white. And the, the black has actually got a little white in it. If you look closely and the yeah. white has a little black in it. If you look closely, um, these poles of chaos and order. And it's uh, even though uh, maybe getting ahead of myself, I think Peterson, um, you know, he needs to get a little more distinctions going on. Right. Between like, you know, good nature versus fallen nature. Um, but one thing is helpful for us is that we do live in fallen nature right now. <laughs> that is our right. world in right now. And so if we expect to in- ever be able to encounter a purified scenario that is all black or all white, um, all yin or all yang, <laughs> or if we think we can create that, 
then we are actually fooling ourselves. We're, we're misunderstanding the nature yeah. of the world we live in. Mm. And I think we would fall into, you know, probably Peterson's criticism of ideology. Um, yes. If we think we can be a totally purified 100% uh, white hat uh, versus the black hats um, and that that's going to be a sustainable model we're actually going to fall into that tyrannical form of order, which would be ide yeah. ideology. Yeah, you yeah. see this in his chapter on marriage, where I think you mentioned in your review, like, this is so much more realistic and on the ground than most Christian writing about marriage. Like, this is, this is the actual sinuous grains of the real thing for most people, is like, yeah. You have to cultivate the romance because it's not all chemistry, folks. Like that's yeah. just real for a hundred million yes. marriages out there, you know, yeah, and, <laughs> and it's and more I, realistic. Yeah, go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, well, and I think it's important because it, Peterson, I, he does make the, I mean, he does say, okay, uh, well, the family is like a training ground. He doesn't use that language. That's sort of my reading of him, but um, it's the way that I intuitively think like the train, you, you, you sort of hone your social skills in your home first with your wife, your relationship to the kids, maintaining order in the home. And then from there, that sort of moves out into all the concentric circles of your different pockets of society. So then you have the church and then you have the city. Um, and as we move through those, we're constantly learning from the people around us about what normal really is. So like he makes a point to say, if you can go to a party and just not be hated you're doing, you're doing all right. Stay in there, kid. Like, you know, this is, this is like, you've made a good step forward. Um, and then as you find yourself in those different scenarios, uh, you just learn how to deal with people. And if you extrapolate that across the higher, you know, um, power dominancy, um, is that's what is part of, you know, he talks about the bottom up. Uh, we need to start from the bottom and build up. And because ultimately our political institutions are made up of individuals. And if individuals simply uh, understand how we can all get along in some way, then that's what we're basically aiming for because otherwise we become ideologues. And I do wanna talk about that because I think that was, I forget who said it, but I, one of you gentlemen said it on um, social media. The price of the book, I mean, in chapter one and seven is worth the price of the book. Mm. Um, maybe it was, I don't remember. But anyway, so in chapter or chapter six, six. he talks. Yeah. About, yeah, I, six. Yes, six. Um, so maybe let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, yeah. Somebody wants to give us sort of like a broad overview of it, and then we can just no, talk Stephen, about yeah, ideology. I'm, kinda, I'm curious what, yeah, how that chapter yeah. struck you. I think that's a crucial chapter, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so um, abandoned ideology, and he's got that great communist poster <laughs> right. um, as the, the introduction here. So yeah. Peterson says that ideology is a false concept. It's a it's a it's an idol. He uses that language actually, and that fits with uh, you know Christian history as well. Um, you are projecting a single concept, a single sort of talking point or interpretive framework onto all of reality yeah. and you argue that it will explain everything and the way to master it is basically to learn the stipulated vocabulary you learn a few kind of trick arguments and then you can retroactively apply those arguments to to anything in life 
Um, and he says, right. as, this, as this catches on, um, people figure out, hey, this is, is sort of a game. If I learn the moves, then I will ascend up in the sight of these people. They will value and esteem me. Um, yeah. I will gain power and success. And he also says it's essential to ideology, not only that you know you are gaining power, but anyone who's doing something different, you must demonize and denigrate. Yeah. Yes. It has to be because if you allow difference, then that would pull the rug out from under your theory, right? You know, your argument is this claim explains everything. Yeah. 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 That's it. It's what's fascinating about that observation is uh, just like, again, chapter one, it, it, he's, he's hitting, it seems to me, right at the core of our civilizational issues because it's something that, oh, so obviously as a double-edged sword. It applies to everybody, all of us in the church, all of the right, all of the left. We all have this tendency toward this kind of relationship to our, to our theological convictions. And it really should be, I mean, in one way, one of the reasons I think Jordan Peterson is so helpful for the church is because it really should be that the people of God are the exception here, that are that we're leading the way <laughs> yep. in a sense of what it looks like to be a thinking person who is not trapped by what it is ultimately a self-serving and pathological way of relating to to the world. What were you gonna say, Dale? No, no, I think that's just right. And and what's so in I was just gonna say what you just said. <laughs> I was gonna say that when oh, we when, when when we always talk about these things, the sort of internal move for I think a lot of conservative types is and the and the left really. Yeah. For all of us really, it is just to say it's talking about the other guy. It's the other guy. Oh, you're the ideologue over there. Yeah. Uh, I'm obviously not the ideologue. And so <laughs> we don't allow us to let the what he's saying penetrate. At least yeah. those are, that's some instinct. We really do need the, you know, when you're pointing the finger at somebody, three fingers are pointing back to you, you know, that, yeah. uh, you know. Or, or, or you need the, the Paul. That's the reality you the, here. <laughs> you, no, you need the Paul Washer moment when he's like, I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you. Like, you know, <laughs> it's like, yeah, okay. I feel yeah. that. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's super and, important because, you know, Peterson, I think a lot of people, you know, people that don't like him, critics of him, uh, particularly from the left, they see him as, you know, blaming everything on Marxism. You know, that's one of right. the big, big talking points, Marxism. But in um, maybe he overdoes that. I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to defend him from, you know, that he's always perfect there or that he always gets it right. But, um, but his reason to go after Marxism is because Marxism is totalizing. Right. It's claiming to push everything into this uh, this sort of grid of people who are in power versus people who are who are being exploited and taking advantage of. And for Marx, right. that's primarily money, uh, you know, capital, mm. um, the use of, of funds, uh, and uh, the the ones who have capital are necessarily exploiting and disenfranchising those who are the ones producing. You know, that's a classic right. Marxist thing. But as we've seen over the last, um, you know, 100 or maybe 75 years, you can take that argument and you can move it away from capital in a, in a money sense, and you can put it on cultural capital, right? Right. Yes. Um, people who have a sense of social power 
even if they don't, we don't know what they do. Right, right, <laughs> right. right. We don't know why they're important or why they're famous, but they just are. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. You know, you can use it that way and uh, then you can apply it to, you know, identity politics and the like. And I think that's a criticism that, you know, many, many sort of conservatives, they're pretty comfortable with that. They're familiar with how that works. Um, but it's very interesting that the church, uh, Peterson doesn't go after the church, but um, I will a little bit. Uh, the church can just turn into an ideology tribe if it's not mm. careful. Yeah. So, uh, you know, if we are, as the church, we see Marxism or a, an inflection or variation of Marxism on the offensive, which it is, which that's correct. Um, if we just turn into the kind of knee jerk uh, opposite or, you know, the funhouse mirror version. Yes. <laughs> so we just turn we just turn around and we have a singular argument that will explain everybody Yes. Um, then we actually become ideologues ourselves. Yes. Um, and, and there are all sorts of Christian versions of this. I remember when I uh, you know, first learned the idea of worldview, uh, the idea was pretty much like, okay, um, once I figured out a couple of tricks here, I can go out and critique any other idea. <laughs> yeah. Right? Just I don't even right. really need to spend that much time with it, right? I got Marx, I got Freud, I can take out Wittgenstein, um, you know, who's next, right? Right, right, right. right. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. And I, I didn't really know much about any of those thinkers individually, but yes. I didn't need to. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And he even makes the point, like um, he says, ideologues come up with um, these sort of broad categories that miss all the subtle complexities of the people they lump into these categories. Then they invent a language and start a social movement to demonize them. Um, and then no matter what you do, everyone fits into one of these sort of broader categories without an understanding of the like fine grained reality and the nature of what society is actually made up of and where yep, it's going yeah. and how people come to to believe what they believe. And what I really appreciate about Peterson is he is showing that he's willing to do that when he talks um, in positive ways about Nietzsche, he talks in positive ways about Marx, and, and he talks in positive ways about Jesus, right? So like he really is embodying the ethos that he thinks is the right way to sort of move forward. Mm. Um, and that's so very, very important. I grew up in a lot of, and this was a brilliant move that he made because I'm about to talk about fundamentalism. I grew up in a sort of very fundamentalist Wesleyan uh, church, um, very, very legalistic, uh, you know, and this was the early 90s. So that form of legalism. Uh, right, like rock and roll. Dress, Early nineties legalism. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but he says that ideologues are actually worse than fundamentalists uh, yeah. be because the fundamentalists actually point to something outside of themselves, at, whereas the ideologue sort of has his the buck stops with him and this totalizing system that he's erected is the thing that parses out bad from good. There is no appeal to an objective shared common experience that spans the course of human history, which is really what he's calling us to do. Like, why are we all here trying to do the, why is it okay not to steal and things like that? So, um, yeah. yeah. One thing that puts together, I think kind of 
wrapping in the two points we have talked about so far, I think the social and the ideological, you're asking about social structures earlier, Dale. I think part of what we need to recognize is the, is the, if I could put it this way, almost the material conditions in which we tend to be ideological. That is to say, um, it's, it's not just an inherited sin. There, there are concrete conditions within which this particular intellectual tendency becomes a tendency. And I think that has a lot to do with living in an era of mobility, living in, a, living in, an, era, in an era where, where social life and the way that we relate to public spaces is in some ways so spectral. It's mostly online. It's mostly over common interest. You don't have those thick overlapping sort of old tribes that exist from time out of mind. And so, so you're kind of piecing back together there, it, necessarily, if I could put it that way, you're sort of thrown into the world where the, where the social life is constructed intentionally in a way that's somewhat historically rare. And I think in that context, then ideology and even relating to our own precious truths becomes a particular temptation for all of us. And so maybe part of talking about what it means to sort of build community and a social life being realistic with these things is partially to kind of off factor that in factor like this is just this is just like you know a lot of times people are sort of like let's get back to the time when this is the way social life worked and part of the this is where trans the creative is important now is you know part of what we need to say is that's not going to happen what we actually have to do is kind of instantiate the natural order and the good the true and the beautiful by deciding to do it out loud, yeah. consciously. Yeah, yeah. And that's hard. And that takes an enormous amount of wisdom. We've been thrown into a big project that we have to do well. Yeah. Yeah. Even if you could somehow reconstruct the, you know, the situation of a previous era, you know, you had the money to do it and you just it, somehow it all worked. The fact that you knew it was a reconstruction effort rather than mm -hmm. just the way life is means is different. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is Zizek on the hijab, right? Zizek has this famous article on uh, the moment you move, you know, you know, there's a lot, there's in, in France and such, there's so much political tension over the wearing of the hijab in, in Muslim circles. And Zizek wrote this famous article where he basically says wearing the hijab in a, a, a culture where it's required and then moving into a Western context where you choose to wear it or choose not to wear it. Yeah. intrinsically changes the calculus of what the act is that you're doing. Absolutely. And there's some, there's some implication of that even for our own relationship to our own faith. It's not yeah. just a given. You actually do have to consciously appropriate it, which, you know, if, if I think if Lewis, one of the things Lewis says about this, of course, is that maybe this is part of God's intention for us, is actually that in his providence, part of the purity of the church is precisely to throw them into a condition <laughs> where yeah. you have to get your act together in a, in a, in a way. It's not just going to be given to you. It's either going to look bad. You're going to do it poorly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or, it's yeah. interesting you mentioned Zizek. Uh, you know, I thought about him a lot while I was reading this book. And I know he and Peterson, they, they've had their debate, which was not as awesome as it should have been, right? <laughs> right. In theory, it, that should have been really great. And it was kind of, you know, um, I think they, you know, they got sidetracked on issues that weren't essential, but I think about him a lot because Peterson, I mean, he's, he's doing the same sort of stuff, you know, he'll, he'll be having some real heavy philosophical conversation and then he'll jump into like a pop culture issue, right? He'll talk yeah. about Harry Potter yes. or uh, Peter Pan, uh, you know, he gives this like deep reading of what's going on. And I, I think that's, that was great. I really entertaining. Um, uh, 
it makes it, it, it gives it a spice, right? That you're not just yeah. bogged down in, uh, you know, deep words all the time. Yeah. And it, uh, oh, no, no, go ahead, Stephen. But one of the things that Peterson really emphasizes in this book is that you are going to have to embrace conflict, mm. right? That's because this is how the world is. You've got your yin and your yang, and they're always there. You will invariably have conflict. And he says, you have to understand conflict is potential. <laughs> like that, that is your opportunity to move forward into new things. Um, you have to know how to do it right. And that's part of the learning the rules, right? Getting the getting the the Tao in in you, um, but then you know how to do conflict, and that's in the marriage chapter. You know, he has a line in there about you know you need to have the fight. Yeah, very mm. important. Um, or there's an expression that says, "Don't get lost in the fog." You remember that section in the book? And so the fog is when either you're confused or you're intimidated or overwhelmed. And so you just let everything go, right? Yeah. You just don't interact. You don't deal with it. Um, ignore it, play it off. But the problem is then it just builds up and you have more of it and more yeah. of it. Right. And more of it. So he says, just go ahead and have the fight, um, even about something trivial. And he had another great line in there. He said, because there's nothing trivial. <laughs> right. It's true. Right. Yes. It's, yeah. 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 And I mean, this is the wisdom we get from scripture too, where it's like, don't let the sun go down when you're angry. Uh, you know, like the application of that to marriage is important. The application of that to friendships and community is very important. Yep. Um, I, I mean, just on a sort of personal level, like when my wife and I get into conflict, we try to resolve it as quickly as possible. That doesn't mean we sort of brush over the things. It does mean that we both have an eye towards resolution almost immediately when the conflict is when the conflict is obvious. Yeah. Um, and a lot of times that means that you have to make the conflict obvious. If it's not that obvious, maybe you're both sort of playing with its obviousness. It's like, oh, here's a thing. Hi, oh, okay, yeah, I think. And then you start to move. Yeah. Um, and that's, in, that's go ahead. Well, that's the part about triviality, right? You, yes. You, you think, oh, this is not that big a deal. <laughs> yes. But it's gonna yeah. happen 10,000 times. That's the problem. Yes. yes. Yeah. I remember and when that, I first got married, um, I was, uh, I think, 27. Oh, boy, I'm getting old enough now. I have to ask myself these questions. Right. So I had lived as a single, you know, young adult man for, for a little while. Um, I had my routines, the things I liked. And so when we got married, I remember one of the conflicts we had was like hanging pictures on the wall. Uh, at what height should the picture <laughs> be hung, right? Yeah. And obviously, I'm taller than my wife, so I'm, I'm putting them at eye level. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, she's saying, that's too high. You're hanging them too high. And I'm like, who cares, right? Why, why right. does it matter the height? But, you know, but probably it didn't matter to me because I was putting them where it looked natural. Sure, <laughs> yeah. sure. And all yeah. of a sudden, it is, it is going to matter if you put them a little lower than what yes. I think is natural. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and, and I the think same... the, the other, the other, oh, I'm sorry, Dale, you know, you go no, ahead. No, go ahead, brother. Go ahead. Brother. Oh, what it, uh, you know, another, just piggybacking again on Dale there, I think another area where this is especially crucial for us is um, not hiding unwanted things in the fog. I think an special one there is grief. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I think even if we deal with sort of conflicts and this sort of thing, sometimes the conflict resolution, just to 
again, this is, I guess, a double piggyback. That quick conflict resolution can also be its own version of pathology, but not in you, Dale, of course, because you're a swell well, of course. But, uh, right. <laughs> but, there, but there are occasions where I, I, I think there was a point in my marriage where I so felt the need to, to, to solve the problem immediately that there was no time to actually develop the problem into what it was. Like, let it, let, let it be what it is. So just so you can figure it out, actually to talk about it intelligibly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, uh, I think this is where the language of letting is very interesting. There's a lot of things in life, and I think grief works this way as well, where you don't necessarily, if you're grieving something, need to manipulate your grief into being. It's just going to rise up. And the moral moment is actually the moment where it just does rise up. It's coming and whether you refuse to allow it to be there. And I think same thing with conflict in marriage. Do you allow the, okay, that does annoy me, doesn't it? You just be honest with yourself. Oh, that does grieve me, doesn't it? And you allow yourself to, to have that and sit before God with it and then resolve it as you think you need to resolve it. But I think grief especially is one where um, we, we easily hide things in the fog and actually we do have to, <laughs> part of being manly is saying my feelings are hurt sometimes, right, 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 <laughs> you know, right. that kind of thing, you know? <laughs> well, and that's what I think, I think Peterson is actually alluding to that. Like one of the dragons you have to slay is the little things going on inside of you psychologically that are preventing you from getting into conflict. Like that's what I think he's trying to do is he's yeah. saying that conflict is an inevitable part of life. And especially in our current cultural context so like the way that you can slay the first dragon is by just recognizing that fact and then coming up with a game plan on how you're going to deal that given all of your weaknesses and vulnerabilities and your strengths so really like know yourself um and and you know you you guys were talking about zizek i i think that this book maps uh, or at least complements very well with truman's book on the self Um, Because what Peterson is saying, in a sense, is like you actually come to identify yourself when the community imprints itself onto you and evokes something out of you. That is part of the calculus to becoming who you are yourself. Mm. Um, And we have to allow ourselves to do that. And part of that, what the community is going to call us to, is conflict. So like, how do I sort of form a vision of the self? It's precisely not only in the, you know, happy cheers, let's break bread and, and throw a party and that's community. It really is like sitting down with people that totally disagree with you and being able to resolve that wisely. Um, so, you know, that's the next dragon and then you find the next dragon and that's his call. Go out and start slaying all the dragons. So, yeah. Yeah. He's got a line. I just, I just turned to it. And it's interesting. He says, um, other people keep you sane. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's a yeah, that's it's something. Yeah, we need to reflect upon that. You know, the old Christian teaching is I think I remember being struck when Bovink in his uh, Bovink's treatment of angels and reformed dogmatics. He emphasizes that human beings are more psychologically complex than animals, not only because they're I'm sorry, than angels, not only because they're rational animals and there's that interaction with the body, but they're also intergenerational. Uh, Mm. there, there's something deeply about the kind of creative apparatus of human beings that were intergenerational and social in a way that angels aren't, aren't at least as, as directly. Uh, and it's an interesting thought that, that, that perhaps is a good segue though, into this, you know, one of the kind of the, the, a smoke or an elephant in the room, if you will, is what you mentioned at the beginning, uh, Stephen, and that's, 
there is something in, in Peterson's own employment of the language that's a little bit, we could call it uh, a stoic or Gnostic or, or, or dualist at least, where you, you do tend to have sort of the black and the white or the whatever. Um, and it's interesting, uh, Christians, fascinatingly, you say in the review, Peterson is very good at describing life under the sun. And it is interesting to note that Christians have always appreciated the writings of the Stoics. They've always thought we need to say more than the Stoics, but Marcus, you can pick up Marcus Aurelius and read him saying things like, you know what, you're going to die. And there's nothing you can do about that. And you're not going to be famous and nobody's going to remember you. <laughs> and you need to yeah. deal with that. And it's actually something you do have to deal with. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But there's the resurrection, of course, adds something, reshapes it. And I wonder if you could comment on where do you, what's the maybe the first gesture to kind of not just receiving the wisdom of somebody like Peterson, but what would a Christian want to add to this kind sure. of yeah. moral vision? Well, yeah, there, there's no doubt that Peterson is, uh, at least in, in this book, you know, I, I hold out hope that he's still, you know, moving and changing. Um, but in this book, he's giving you a um, sort of a perennial combination. I'm using perennial as in like all of the wisdoms and philosophies of world history. Um, he's giving you a perennialist combination of, uh, of dualistic philosophies, uh, Stoicism and Taoism. And then, you know, with using Jung uh, as a more modern thinker, he's, he's putting those all together. And so he says that the, the universe itself um, you know, being with a capital B, right? He, he capitalizes the word. Yes. Um, being is inherently both, you know, order and chaos at the same time in tension. And um, it is coming more and more into being over time. Right. So, I mean, it is, it is a dialectic that is you know, moving forward into greater perfection. And uh, he even has a quote in there. He says, um, I'm, I'm going to have to paraphrase it right now, but I put it in that review on the Gospel Coalition. Basically, he says, um, that being could manifest itself in you. Mm, <laughs> so, right. so when you when you encounter chaos and you embrace the conflict and bring order to chaos, that being, the being, capital B being, could manifest in you. Um, another quote I just saw as I was flipping through, spirit, so it doesn't say the spirit, it is spirit, is the creative force that gives rise to what becomes dogma with time. Spirit constantly transcends time honor tradition. So he's using this language that it's, you know, it's kind of Christian, but it's right. kind of not, <laughs> right? Yes. Like, um, spirit transcends dogma um, being manifests itself and he even has a really extreme line in there um, you know I, I could have made a lot more hay out of it than I did but he says basically Christ and Satan are the personifications of the two poles right yeah. right and so, I mean, man, if, if I just said that and didn't tell you who I was quoting, you would yeah. flip out, right? Right. <laughs> yeah, right, what you right. don't, and I wonder if what you don't get in, uh, I was talking with Alistair about this subject recently, and what you don't get in Peterson, I think, even though um, where I think he corrects maybe sort of pop evangelical piety, uh, is he's just far more honest with the with the darker, heavier aspects of existence than our kind of precious moment sentimentalizations of the Christian life. 
nevertheless, um, maybe a, a corrective to Peterson would be something like a Luther's spirituality, which, which has that full dialectic where you really are grieving with death. You really feel the weight of the world in some way. And yet there's this other aspect of the soul that is so lighthearted and jolly in drinking the beer because God has overcome, the devil's been defeated. And there's a whole part of you that's just like, yeah, I don't, I don't need to worry about the devil too much because Jesus is a Jesus. And that's real because that's, yeah. and that's where I wonder the resurrection relative to Stoicism, even, even in the first century, uh, one yeah, of the, the resurrection. I think you also have to have the creature-creator distinction. Yes. Yeah. That's the ontological basis of this historical distinction. That's right. Go ahead and that's, say say yeah, what. That's you mean the by problem that. here. Um, Peterson, when he talks about nature, um, you know, he's really good at all this natural law stuff. So we're pumped and we're excited. Right. But for Peterson, nature equals what we would call fallen nature. Yeah. Yeah. He says nature is always um, degenerating and devolving back into chaos. Um, nature, he has a line, and nature is doing its best to kill us. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so for him, nature is the dragon. You know, it yeah. is the primordial chaos monster. And um, unfortunately, you know, Peterson can draw on some, you know, kind of liberal Old Testament scholarship to, to proclaim that that's in Genesis. Uh, right. That's a mistake. Um, but that's how he's reading it. And so we need to correct that by saying, well, no, 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 no. <laughs> you know, yeah. originally there's just God and nothing but God. And he's yeah. good. He is perfect. And he is um, he is a self-subsisting being uh, in no need of becoming. Right. There's no right. variation or shadow of turning with this God. He is total aseity and perfection. But then this God chooses out of his free, spontaneous will and goodness to create something that is, you know, outside of himself. And that thing he creates is good. Yeah. But yes. it's only because of um, the, you know, the mystery here, but only because of the misuse of creaturely freedom that, right. that nature turns bad. Right. Yeah. So to me, that piece is really essential um, because otherwise Peterson is going to leave you in a sort of like Gnostic, Arian, Pelagian kind of situation where right. we're all in this bad situation. And if we just, if we embrace the reality of it and work hard, we'll get out of it. Yeah. Right. Now, what's interesting though, is he concludes the book with gratitude. Yeah. And this is what had me when I saw his uh, podcast um with uh i forget his name pejo prejo the, the yeah icon. jonathan pajow pajow yeah yes. the icon yeah. maker um he was he was really emphasizing gratitude and peterson is in tears you know when he's talking yeah. about gratitude so i thought wow man this guy you know he's he's entering the kingdom we're watching it you know yeah <laughs> but yeah. um maybe i'm i'm too optimistic maybe he's not there yet but i i hope he is you know i pray for him there and i think yes. gratitude is the great hook to get him because to whom are you grateful yeah right does it make sense to be grateful to a impersonal being that yeah. is constantly becoming yeah yeah like, like gratitude doesn't really lat it doesn't appropriately connect to that concept right yeah gratitude is to a person uh to to an entity who has given you benevolent goodwill right right <laughs> yes yeah and i have hope for peterson um i mean because you're right i watched that same interview and i'm thinking 
this guy is is right there. Um, and I think he is starting. So I think his, well, I won't speculate because I'm not sure about that. So I just won't say anything. But anyway, um, I think that, uh, so as we're wrapping up here, what we're trying to do is say Peterson um, contributes a whole ton of wisdom to the sort of conversation, to the big conversation of our current moment. And really, it's a bunch of evergreen ideas that were there embedded in reality anyway, that he's just pulling at and looking at and going, look at these things, guys. Um, and so on that level, he's good for us to read as Christians. Uh, I think you mentioned in your article, it's the whole, you know, pick out the, uh, eat, spit out the bones and keep the yeah. good meat. Yeah. Um, and that really is a case with Jordan Peterson. But I do think that if you approach him you should allow, you should sit before him and allow him to really communicate to you. So it's not like the defense shields have to be at 100%. Um, you can lower the guard a little bit because what he's going to say is going to resonate with all of your little Christian spidey senses anyway. And where he yeah. does, let that expand your soul in that direction. And where you feel the spidey senses of your Christianity go, ah, then close down on that, right? Yeah. So maybe a good way of then then uh, just throwing a last question to you, Stephen. Then would be because uh, I think this would help wrap a bow on it. And that is, you know, so you know, you're a pastor, and so like you know, you could have a similar situation of Peterson, a young man sitting in front of you with a very similar situation, and maybe it is I can't get out of bed in the morning. You know, I'm. I'm depressed. I feel like my life has fallen apart. I don't, you know, none of the girls like me. My job sucks. What, what do you think, you know, on the one hand, Peterson has his set of things to say to that guy. What, if he, what do you think you have as a Christian pastor to offer that guy that Peterson, that you don't find in Peterson? You know, yeah. so there's some things he'll say, what if you have as a pastor that you can add to that? Sure. Yeah. Well, great question. I do want to, you know, affirm what Dale said. I'm still going to give him Peterson. Yeah, <laughs> it's not exactly. Like, like I am also going to give him Peterson, but I'm going to say, now let's add this, this personal deity, the God, the living God who has revealed himself to us and reveals the way out of nature. It is true. Nature is constantly devolving back into chaos because it's been subjected to vanity through the fall but now through christ and the resurrection as you were uh, mentioning earlier we are now being pulled out of that mm. and we walk by faith right now because we you know we used to look around we still see the chaos monster everywhere uh, yeah. it still is very present but we know that god has already killed it killed the dragon in christ and that um, we are progressing towards that perfect life, which will finally come when he returns. Mm -hmm. And so we're in the middle of that chaos fight right now, but we know what the end is going to be. And we yeah. have that constant connection to God through prayer, through the spirit who's been given to us. Um, and then, yes, the community of the church helping to support us in that way. Yeah, yeah. you see, yeah, you're, I think... Yeah, the connection and the one thing I'll, I'll I'll add to that is I think like the the love of God, you know, it's it's the, there's a connection with the personal God, which which if sort of you know the pastoral care is sort of uh, get it together and then God will be happy with you, uh, that can be its own that can become its own pathology. But when the pastoral care, I think, is God is on your side, you know, like He knows your weakness, 
you know, he really, he, <laughs> he's not yeah. surprised that you're a sinner and can't hashtag can't even, but he, yeah. he's here to help you. And, and the church yeah. is here to help you. We put a face, you know, hands and feet on that, that aspect of God, yeah. you know, through compassion and through encouraging godliness and, yeah. and any and other yeah. thoughts? Go ahead. You mentioned Luther, you know, we can continue this dialectical thought because, uh, yes, we are progressing from a broken being into a resurrected being into perfection, but we often realize that progression in a way that feels backwards by reducing ourselves to nothingness. You know, this is an expression yeah. Luther would say, you encounter yeah. the law and it breaks you and you humble yourself and, and you confess your weakness. Um, you know, that might look like you're going the wrong way. <laughs> Yeah, right, right, backwards. Right. But no, that's actually one of the means that you get to go forwards. Right. Yeah. That's yes. right. Amen. Well, this was good, gentlemen. Um, yeah. I appreciate the conversation. Uh, Stephen, thank you so much, brother, for yeah, thank you. joining us. I'm sure we'll have you back if the Lord tarries or unless we get raptured tomorrow, we can have, we can continue the conversation in heaven. Uh, but uh, Jordan Peterson, Beyond Order, um, good recommend. Um, Real quick, Stephen, let me ask you one last one. So on a scale of one to 10, brother, I have to know this. What's Where does Beyond Order rank? Scale one to 10. 10 being like the best thing that you would think would come out of Jordan Peterson and one being the worst thing that could possibly be <laughs> come from Jordan Peterson. Um, I was I was extremely pleasantly surprised at the book. It exceeded expectations, uh, both in the sense of readability. It was just an enjoyable read and in the content. So, you know, I give it maybe uh, 8.75. Ooh, nice. Oh, I appreciate that. Yeah. That's a restaurant I'd go to. All right. That's right. Yeah. I mean, Excellent. understanding what kind of book it is, right? This yeah. is a yes. book meant for a broad audience. It is in the self-help category. This is not yep. Christian theology, right? Let's clear the, the air. But yeah, yeah well, that's yes. right. <laughs> Accept the book for what it is. I think it's a really good book. And I, yeah. I would hand it out. Uh, to lots of folks and recommend them read it. Mm. Uh, excellent. Yes. And we will uh, link to your TGC article. Everyone yep. sh check it out. Um, it's very well written, very, very readable uh, and concise and also deep. So thank you for yep. that. Um, as always, you can head over to davenantinstitute.org. Um, and you can also visit Davenant Institute on YouTube, where we have all of the Pilgrim Faith podcasts uploaded. Find us on iTunes or any of your podcast catchers. And we also have a Facebook page and a Facebook group if anybody would like to head over there and join the conversation. Uh, but Stephen, thank you, brother. Joe, love you very much. Love and, you too, man. Uh, we will see you next time. All right. Thanks, guys. See you. Yes, sir.